Well, good evening. Again, Hallows Church, two weeks in a row. This is a bit unusual here in Fremont uh, for me. Uh, but Andrew and the Arthur family are still traveling. Andrew is uh, actually doing some teaching and preaching at a, a youth camp in Texas last week and in, I think, the Denver area this coming week. And so please be in prayer for them as they uh, travel and as uh, Andrew teaches and serves these youth in that sort of way. Uh, my name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to do that. And it's also my privilege to Uh, Open our Bibles today to this passage, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. And as we continue this journey this summer in this uh, series called Drawing Near, we're going to today be uh, fixing our attention on the attribute of grace, the grace of God. But before we do, let me draw your attention to this week's artistic contribution that's inspired by this week's uh, attribute of God. It's over here to my left. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, what's happening is each week in this sermon series, an artist within our faith family is making an artistic contribution to what is really a growing collection of pieces that are inspired by the attribute or the aspect of God that is under study uh, that particular week. And this image here, this is a photograph. It was contributed by Amanda Hickernell, who attends our West Seattle Expression. And one of the themes of this passage today and of this message that uh, you'll be hearing today is is that God's grace in some ways can be disorienting. It can be unsettling in some ways. And uh, as Amanda reflected on that theme and on this passage over the past um, few weeks, she felt led to contribute this this photograph that she had taken uh, a little while back. And and I'd encourage you to step up and look closely because I can understand why she chose that one based on this theme of the disorienting effects of grace. It's a picture of a reflection in a lake, and it's, from a distance, it's hard to kind of tell what's going on, but take a look at it if you have a chance, because it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And let, me, um, let me tell you what Amanda said about this photograph. She said, just as this photo of Mirror Lake is beautiful, disorienting, and the undeniable handiwork of God, so it is with God's grace. The more I learn of God's grace, the more awestruck I become that he would die for me. And so we just, uh, we're, we appreciate Amanda and her partnership in this way and, and her willingness to share her gifts in this sort of way. All right, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, we'll be exploring this parable today, and I think it's a, an intriguing parable in many ways. And you may know that parables are stories, they're fictional stories that Jesus often told in order to make a point in order to make a point about spiritual reality and often to make a point about the kingdom of God and his parables quite often uh, make their points in, in surprising or unexpected ways. In fact, I would say that many, in many of the parables told by Jesus, there is, there is a, a punchline of sorts. And if you're reading along in one of his parables and you find that you're uh, not at all surprised or, or slightly shocked by the time you get to the end of it, you may very well have missed the punchline of the parable, kind of like a person missing the punchline of a joke. There's actually a line in an obscure old song about Jesus. It's a song about uh, Jesus being a wandering preacher in Palestine, and the chorus of the song goes something like this. It says, If all the things Jesus said were written down in words, the whole world could not contain the books. Now, some of you may have just made a connection between those words of that course, 
chorus and the, the very last words written by the Apostle John in the gospel that he wrote. In John chapter 21, verse 25, the final verse of John's gospel, he said, there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. And so the connection seems pretty clear there between the chorus in that song and what John said in that final verse. But then you get to the end of that song and the chorus changes in an interesting way. The final chorus says this, it says, if all the jokes that Jesus told were written down in words, the whole world could not contain the laughter, which I think is a very clever line on more than one level. Many might hear that and say, wait a minute, Jesus didn't tell any jokes, and if they do, they would have, in a sense, missed the joke. Jesus actually said many funny things. He said many things that many people thought were laughable and still do. The message of the cross is foolishness, says the Apostle Paul. But why is it that we we laugh at jokes in the first place? When someone tells a good joke, you're being led along and and your mind is perhaps expecting one conclusion and the actual conclusion kind of catches you off guard and and flips everything in an unexpected way. And when that happens, there is this sort of uh, outburst of emotion. Often parables can do something similar. Jesus is leading us along. You don't know what's coming and you're expecting one conclusion. But something startling or unexpected happens instead when, when the punchline comes. Parables are intended to trip us up at times, but in a good way, to to kind of shock us and shake us out of our complacency and to get us to say to ourselves, gosh, I, I never thought God was like that. Or perhaps also to say, gosh, I never thought I was like that. But not everyone, every time, gets the joke, do they? The punchline goes right past some. And not everyone, every time, gets the punchline of the parable either. Many read this particular parable in Matthew chapter 20 and they say to themselves, hmm, as in, what am I supposed to make of that? The landowner, he needed workers and he went out into the marketplace five different times throughout the course of the day and he hired a new group of workers each time to come and to to work in his vineyard. And then when quitting time came, the foreman came out with the money to pay the various groups for what they had done. And here's the punchline. They all got paid exactly the same amount, whether they worked for 12 hours or whether they worked for one. And so how does that punchline hit you? Do you find any humor at all in it? Or does it sound somewhat troubling and somewhat unfair? If it sounds somewhat troubling and unfair, stay with me here because Jesus wrote this parable just for people like you. Now surely this last group of workers, the ones who worked for only an hour and received a full day's pay, surely, sure, surely they were laughing some about all of this and celebrating too. But the ones who worked a full day, the first group of workers hired who worked all day long in the, in the burning heat, they were not laughing. To them it was not funny at all, rather it was infuriating. 
In verse 10, it says that they assumed that they would get more compensation than the others, but they did not. And in verse 11, it says that they began to uh, grumble and to complain to the landowner. And the truth is, you and I might do the very same, right? From childhood on, aren't most of us taught that you need to get out there, you need to get to work, you need to work hard, you need to perform, you need to achieve. Our natural instinct, in fact, is that we need to, to work harder than the next guy to avoid being left out or left behind. And so you go out and you get it, you work hard, you earn it, and you expect to get what you have coming to you. And this first group of workers, they were out there, they were ready to go from the crack of dawn. They put in a full day of hard labor and they wanted to get what they deserved. But instead, this landowner does something that contradicts every common sense business practice that you can think of when it comes to employee motivation and fair compensation. It was atrocious economics, plain and simple, what this landowner did. But here's the thing. Jesus, in telling this parable, did not intend to teach us a lesson about running a business. His story makes absolutely no uh, economic sense, but that was his intent. His parables, in fact, often include seemingly absurd behavior to deliver their message, which in this case is a message about the kingdom of God and about what in the kingdom of God is fair and what is deserved by by you and I or by anyone else. What Jesus is also doing here is he's issuing a caution to the disciples about their own uh, attitudes about God and I think he's issuing a caution to us too about ours. He's going to show us that God's grace cannot be calculated like a day's wages even though at times we might like that to be the case. He intends in many ways for this parable to be a test of how you and I really think about God and the grace that he has extended to us in the gospel. But before we continue, I want to make sure that uh, we are clear on what prompted Jesus to tell this story in the first place. In Matthew chapter 19, the chapter just prior to the one we're in today, turn back there if you'd like, but in, in that chapter, Matthew chapter 19, you see a man approaches Jesus to talk to him He was a very wealthy and successful young businessman, the rich young man or the rich young ruler he's referred to as. And this guy had it all together. He was a very good man, a very moral man. He went to church every week. He tithed. He followed the rules. And he had been watching Jesus. And he was very intrigued by Jesus. And we're told in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, that he approached Jesus and he asked him a question. He said, teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? And in verse 17, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, he said, keep the commandments. The man said, I have. I have kept the commandments. What do I still lack? And in verse 21, Jesus said, then go. Sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, Jesus said, come and follow me. And we're told in verse 22 that the young man was, uh, he, he was gutted, really. It says he went away grieving and sorrowful. Why? Because he had many, many possessions, it says. 
And then Jesus turned to his disciples in verse 24, and he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so utterly astonished were the disciples. Jesus' words were shocking and disturbing to the rich young ruler, and they were shocking and disturbing as well to to his own disciples. And Peter, being Peter really, he did not like what he was hearing, and so he he chimed in quickly as he often does. He said, wait a minute, Lord, if, if that guy can't be saved, he is a very good man. What about us? We have left everything and followed you. And so what will there be for us, Peter asked. This is Peter being Peter with his often rather brash, uh, what's in it for me sort of mentality. And you see the same thing in some of the other disciples at various times. You see some of them having a certain uh, sense of entitlement, really. Hey, Jesus, we've been uh, with you from the get-go, and so when you, when you establish your kingdom, what's, what's my title going to be? What's my rank going to be? Can I get that nice corner office with a nice view? And Jesus, he basically says in verses 28 and 29 of Matthew chapter 19, he says, Peter, your reward is coming, and it will be more than you can imagine. You will be seated on a throne with me, uh, he says, He says, your reward is coming. And then in the final verse of chapter 19, he says, but, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's what Jesus says immediately before he begins telling today's parable. The first will be last and the last first. Now, if that sounds a bit familiar, there's a reason for that. Because in the final verse of today's parable, you may have noticed Jesus actually says the same thing, only inverted. So in verse 30 of chapter 19, Jesus Jesus says the first will be last and the last first. And then he tells the parable. And then the last line of the parable, verse 16 of chapter 20, he says the last will be first and the first last. And so these two statements, these two inverted statements spoken by Jesus, they they bracket this parable like bookends. And this is no accident, that's to be sure. This very much is cueing us in, I think, to what Jesus is going to be addressing in this parable. And he's going to be addressing, at least in some way, what he means by those two statements. And he's also going to be addressing as well Peter's question of, Lord, what's in it for us? We've been here from the very beginning with you. Surely we deserve some special status or some special privileges And if you think about it, isn't that the same sort of thing the first group of workers in the vineyard were feeling? Like they deserve more than they were getting from the the landowner, even though the landowner had paid them exactly what they had agreed upon? And so if that's the case, if the first group of workers who worked all day, if they got exactly what they were promised, what was their problem? What were they complaining and grumbling about? Well, we know what their problem was. Their problem was they had their uh, eyes on these other groups of people that came after them, and they didn't like what they saw. The other groups, they were getting a full day's wage too, even though some of them hadn't worked as long or as hard as they had. And so they started comparing themselves and their situation to those around them. 
And when they began doing that, what happened? They very quickly lost sight of the landowner's gracious provision and generosity extended toward them that morning. There's actually a very interesting example of this same sort of thing in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. At that point in John's Gospel, Jesus had already been crucified. He had been buried in the tomb. He had risen and walked away from the tomb, and he had appeared in physical form to the disciples and to many others. And in this scene, Jesus and the disciples were having a sort of picnic on the shore. And Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, you and I need to talk. He said, Peter, I need you to know something. The day is coming, Peter, when people will bind you and take you to a place that you do not want to go. And they are going to kill you. And verse 19 says that Jesus said this to Peter to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Now surely this shook Peter up a bit, and understandably so. And in that moment, we're told that Peter looked over his shoulder at the Apostle John off in the distance and said to Jesus, what about him? And get this, Jesus said to Peter, if, if I want John to remain until I return, what is it to you, Peter? As for you, Peter, you follow me. You focus on me, not on him. Jesus there speaking to Peter sounds a a little bit like the landowner in verses 13 to 15 when the landowner looks at the first group of workers who, who were complaining and he says, friends, I am doing you no wrong. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Does my generosity toward others bother you? Jesus says, what is it to you, Peter? That's not your concern. Keep your focus uh, on me, not on John. Now, a quick side note, it is believed by most scholars and by church tradition that Peter, because he was a follower of Jesus, was indeed persecuted. In fact, it is believed that he was crucified upside down, upside down by his own request because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same way that Jesus had. It is also believed that the Apostle John lived a very long life into his mid-80s, and he died of natural causes, it's believed, though, though some did try to kill him too along the way, they just did not succeed. According to the second century writings of Tertullian, it is said that at one point John was put into a vat of boiling oil in the middle of the Roman Colosseum before a very large crowd of people. You see, Christian persecution was quite popular at that time, and it was quite a, a crowd pleaser as well. But it is written by Tertullian that when John was put into that boiling oil, the story goes that he suffered nothing from it, but rather went on preaching Jesus before that crowd. The story also goes that many, if not most, in the Colosseum that day were converted to Christianity because of the miracle that they had just witnessed. And that's quite fascinating, if that's in fact how things went down. In any event, what Jesus was saying to Peter in John chapter 21 was, look at me, keep your eyes on me, not on John, not, not on anyone else. Don't worry about what's going on over there. And Jesus said this to Peter, and I, I think he says this to us too because he knows that we all struggle with this. We compare, we contrast, we compete. 
There was a 17th century Christian writer named Thomas Brooks, and in one of his books, he said that, he said that in general, human beings get their self-esteem by comparing themselves to others and by looking down on others, by boasting over and despising different classes and groups of human beings. He says that we find ways to build ourselves up and to justify ourselves at the expense of those around us. And there is, I believe, a lot of truth to that. But here's the funny thing. Not only do we compare and contrast ourselves to others, our, our comparisons are entirely, entirely skewed. They're not even close to being fair comparisons in most cases. In fact, did you know that if, if you are like most people, then you are way above average at just about everything that you do? Get this, when researchers asked over a million high school students how well they treated their peers, 60% of the students believed they were in the top 10%. And 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. They asked the same type of question of some college professors, and you would think that group might have a little more self-insight uh, and self-awareness, but that did not seem to be the case. 25% of them rated themselves as exceptional. 63% rated themselves as above average, while only 2% rated themselves below average. Those are some interesting numbers. Those numbers don't really seem to add up so well, but what those numbers uh, tell us is that we inflate and we overestimate our own views of ourselves. But then it gets worse because what we do is we use that inflated view of ourselves as the, as the basis for comparing ourselves to others which leads to a very false and very flimsy sense of superiority, and in many cases, a false sense of entitlement, too. I did this sort of thing for most of my life without really being very conscious of it. I spent my whole life working hard, playing hard, looking around at others, comparing myself to others, telling myself I had quite a bit going on, telling myself I had... Uh, or the reason that I had done pretty well in my life is because I was uh, better than most, I was smarter than most, I, I worked harder than most. That guy over there is uneducated, that guy is lazy, that guy has no clue, no wonder they're struggling. And how did I deal with those who seemed to be better than me, better off than me, better looking than me? Well, surely they got there by luck, lucky breaks, lucky genetics, Surely everything was handed to them. Surely they got there because of their privilege. They didn't, they didn't really earn it. They most certainly don't deserve it. I managed to find ways to look down on people, not only when they were below me in the world's pecking order, but when they were above me too. But then quite abruptly and quite unexpectedly, I was, I was confronted by grace. I was confronted by Jesus in my life in a way that absolutely broke me and, and broke me down in a, in a good way, in the best possible way, as he showed me the depths of my sin and the heights of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. And then instead of looking down on everybody, I began to look up at somebody. Grace is a powerful force. It has the power to transform lives, it most certainly did mine. Many of you have seen or read Les Miserables by, by Victor Hugo. It's a, it's a great story, and in, 
in that story, the main character, Jean Valjean, he gets put into prison unjustly as a young man. He spends nearly 20 years in prison unjustly, and when he's in there, as you might expect, it changes him, it hardens him in many ways. And then finally, when he gets out of prison, whereas he wasn't really a criminal when he went in, he, he becomes one. The way he saw it was that the system abused him. Now he was going to abuse the system and whoever he needed to in it in order to get on and to get by in his life. And when he gets out of prison, things are not going well for him. That is until a stranger, a, a Catholic bishop, is very hospitable to him and, and very warm to him and invites Valjean into his home for a meal and to stay the night, to have a place to sleep. But when the bishop finally goes to bed, Jean Valjean starts snooping around. He finds the bishop's silver in a cupboard, in a cupboard just above the sleeping man's head, and he takes it. In fact, Valjean was prepared to kill the bishop if the bishop had, was to wake up, but the bishop didn't wake up, and, and Jean Valjean stole the silver from this man. He took the silver and he took off, but he did not get very far. You see the police, they catch him while he's trying to escape from uh, the bishop's house and they bring him back to the bishop and they say, uh, Bishop, we have caught this man coming out of your property carrying what appears to be some of your property. The bishop looked into Jean Valjean's eyes for a long moment and to Jean Valjean's amazement, the bishop turns to the policeman and he says, oh, no, no, no. I gave that silver to him. And here, my friend, I forgot to give you this too. And the bishop goes off for a moment and grabs his silver candlesticks from a drawer, the last objects of real value that he owns. And he walks over and he says to Jean Valjean, I forgot to give you the candlesticks too. Please take them. The police said, we could have sworn he was acting like a thief. But the bishop says, no, no, we are fine here. Just a misunderstanding. You are dismissed. The police left and Jean Valjean is standing there, disoriented by what had just happened, confronted by this experience of grace. Valjean knew full well that if the bishop had told the truth and given him what he had deserved, Valjean would, spend the remainder of his, would have spent the remainder of his life back in that prison. But the bishop didn't do that. Instead, the bishop says to him, Jean Valjean, my brother, you, are, you no longer... You no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you, and I give it to God. And the next part doesn't come out so much in the, in the musical or in the movie either, but in the next chapter of the book, we're told of this incredible struggle that Jean Valjean was having within himself and just how unsettled and disoriented he was by what the bishop had done. The book says something like this, there came over him at moments a strange emotion opposed to the hardness that he had acquired during his 20 years in prison. He perceived that the frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune had conferred upon him was giving way within him. He was conscious that this pardon, this celestial kindness, this act of grace was the greatest assault and most formidable attack that he had ever faced. And then the chapter, as it's coming to a close, it says this, it says, Jean Valjean wept for a long time through the night. 
He wept, burning tears. He sobbed with more fright than a child. But as he wept, daylight penetrated more and more clearly into his soul. He examined his life, and it seemed horrible to him. His soul, and it seemed frightful to him. But in the meantime, a gentle light rested over his life and his soul. And then at the very end of the chapter, we're told that the, that the mailman who uh, was delivering his route in the bishop's neighborhood that same night before the sun had rose saw a strange figure kneeling in the posture of prayer in the shadows in front of the bishop's home. Jean Valjean was confronted by grace and in the presence of that grace, he was able to open his eyes to his own sin and to be changed by what he had received. All of the groups of workers in this parable were confronted by the landowner's grace that day. It affected everyone that day, but it didn't affect everyone in the same way. Not all of them were grateful for it. Some felt shortchanged, some were bitter about it, others surely surprised and amazed by it. And so let's talk about that for a moment. Let's talk about a few things we learned from this parable about the grace of God. And one thing we see is that God extends his grace justly. The landowner in no way cheated or shortchanged this first group of workers who worked all day. He actually gave them exactly what they were promised. In verse 13, he says, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. You agreed to work for, for one denarius. And you may not have picked up on this, but it's kind of interesting. It was only the first group of workers who wanted to negotiate at all with the landowner. It says in verse 2 that they had come to an agreement about their compensation. With every other group, there was no negotiation. There were no deals struck. There were no contracts signed. Rather, we're told in verse 4 that the landowner simply said to them, Trust me, and I'll give you what is right. I'll give you what is just. And they did just that. They trusted him. And as we've seen, they, uh, he uh, exceeded their expectations, didn't he? God's grace is not a wage or a reward for work performed. It's not the sort of thing that you can bargain with or try to store up. It isn't the sort of thing that one person has a lot of and another person only a little. God doesn't make contracts with us as if we could bargain or negotiate for a better deal. He doesn't make contracts with us. No, he makes covenants with us and he makes promises uh, to us. And as you trust him, as you, as you take him at his word that he'll do what is right and that, that he'll do what is just, he will quite often exceed your expectations too. God extends his grace justly. But we also see in this passage that God extends his grace without any regard to merit Verse 9, when those who were hired at the 11th hour at 5 p.m. came up to get paid, they also received one denarius like the others. Every last one of the workers that day received the very same grace from the landowner, regardless of when they showed up, how long they worked, or how hard they worked. And so it is when it comes to the gospel for you and I. Your acceptance by God in the gospel is not based on what you do or, or when you do it or how well you do it or how long you've been doing it. It's not based on you at all. 
The Apostle Paul could not be any more clear about this. He says in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is, a, it is God's gift, not from your works, so that no one may boast. Many Christians often read this parable and identify at some level with the first group of workers, those who put in the full day's work. And it does make some sense. Most of us like to think of ourselves as responsible workers, right, who deserve fair treatment. And the landowner's strange behavior that day does not seem like fair treatment at all. But if we're thinking about this in business terms, we do risk missing an important point, and that is that God dispenses gifts, not wages. And gifts are not something that we earn or deserve. They're something that we receive In fact, when it comes to the gospel, God not only extends the gift of salvation to you and I without regard to our merit, he extends the gift of salvation to you and I, as J.I. Packer said, in open defiance of our demerit. Because the truth is, you and I, we have no merit before God, none whatsoever, none at all, not even a little bit, apart from Christ's merit, gifted to us by faith. We deserved punishment and got forgiveness. We deserved judgment and got mercy and love. We deserved nothing, and yet he gives us everything. The grace of the gospel should remind us, it needs to remind us that we are more sinful, we are more broken, we are more jacked up than we ever dared believe, but but we are also more accepted and more loved and more affirmed than we ever dared hope. And there is power in that. Only the grace of the gospel can humble you without humiliating you, while at the very same time lifting you up and affirming you without flattering you. It both brings you low and builds you high at the very same time, and there's nothing at all like it. Nothing can both confront the human heart and simultaneously comfort the human heart like the gospel can. And there's power in that. Another thing we see in this parable is that God extends his grace generously. Now as I thought and reflected on this passage this week, I began to wonder about these different groups of workers. I started to wonder if the reason the first group of workers were grumbling at the landowner was was really only all about money. I started to wonder if their grumbling was not only about how the landowner was extending grace, but perhaps also to whom he was extending that grace. Now, some may think that the later groups of workers, the last group especially, they weren't, uh, weren't they just being lazy? Didn't they just sleep in or something? It doesn't seem like they were trying very hard to get work that day. But that's not at all what the passage says. In verse 6, we're told that the landowner went out the final time at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m. It says he came across some standing around, and the landowner straight up asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And their answer is quite revealing. They said, because no one has hired us. Nobody, in other words, wanted them. They were perhaps the sort of people everybody tried not to hire. 
And so who might these people have been that nobody wanted to hire? I cannot say for sure, but I wonder if perhaps they were people who were marginalized in some way by society for one reason or another, or people who mainstream society had dismissed or disregarded or even despised. Perhaps they belonged to the wrong ethnic group or the wrong religious group or the wrong social group, and as a result, nobody was willing to hire them. In any case, I also began to wonder if the first group of workers were begrudging the landowner's generosity toward the last group of workers, not only because of how much money he had given them, but because of the value and the dignity that he was ascribing to them by hiring them and by paying them in the first place. Now, I do admit that I'm engaging in a bit of speculation here, but I do wonder. After all, listen to the language of the grumbling in verse 12, the first group's uh, complaint to the landowner. What they said was that you have made them equal to us. Could it be that Jesus is reminding us here of God's heart for all people, especially the least of these, and even the worst of these in society? And could it be that Jesus is showing us here too that it's never too late for anyone, no matter your past, no matter your background, no matter your level of brokenness or depravity? His offer of grace, his full offer of grace is available to anyone and everyone, even at the 11th hour. It's never too late to turn to him, but you can't wait forever either. And I love what the landowner says in reply to the grumbling. He says, He says, I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. He says, take what is yours and go. God extends his grace generously and it confronts people sometimes in a positive way and sometimes, sometimes not. But do you know who the last man was to be confronted by the grace of Jesus while he lived on this earth? Wasn't it the thief on the cross? The guilty and despised criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus? Listen to Luke's account of this. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me uh, when you come into your kingdom. In verse uh, 43, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, it seems that the very last man to be confronted by the grace of Jesus was in fact the very first man to join him in heaven. The last will be first, the first last. It's a riddle of sorts, I think. Perhaps what Jesus is saying is that there is no winner, rather everyone wins if you're willing to turn to me and trust me. It's like a tie, really. And when there's a tie, no one is ahead and no one is behind. And in God's kingdom, that is the principle for every person on this planet, You're either in or you're out. No one is more in or more out. 
no special advantages, no special status or rank, no superior or inferior Christians, no, just Christians. The playing field is level for all, and it is open to all. There was a student at a Christian college in Missouri several years back who wrote about a very unexpected thing that happened to him in one of his classes when he, uh, when he went there to, and he showed up to take his final exam. He said when he got to class, everybody was doing their last minute studying and the professor came in and said what they were going to do was they were going to take the first hour and to uh, review together for that final exam. The student said that uh, what most of the material the professor was covering, he said most of that uh, review came right out of the study guide, but he also said there were a number of things that the professor was going over that they had never seen or heard up to that point. And several students began looking around uh, at one another with rather puzzled looks on their faces and rather concerned looks too. And when questioned about it, the professor simply said that it was all in the assigned course materials. And if they weren't familiar with it, perhaps it was because their preparation for that final exam had been incomplete. Now the majority of the class was not feeling good at all about what seemed to be happening in that moment. But finally, it was time to take the test The professor handed out the exams uh, face down on the desk of each one of the students. And after he did, he told the students they could turn over their exams and begin. And this student said, as I turned the test over, to my amazement, every answer on the test was already filled in. My name was already written in red ink at the top of the exam. He said the bottom of the last page said this. It said, this is the end of the exam. All of your answers on your test are correct. You have received an A plus on your final exam. And get this, it said, the reason that you passed this test is because the creator of the test took it for you. Any work you did in preparation for this test did not help you to receive your perfect grade. It said some things you learn from lectures Some things you learn from research, but some things you can only learn from experience, and you have just experienced grace. Friends, there was another test taken, wasn't there, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3? A test that was taken by Adam and Eve, and a test that was failed by Adam and Eve, and that was failed miserably. But the creator of the test decided to take the test for you and to ace the test for you. And all you need to do is to let him. And so have you done that? If you haven't yet, let him do that for you. I hope you'll do so today. I hope you'll experience his grace today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for your grace today. Thank you for... Uh, challenging us with your grace, for confronting us uh, with that. Thank you for your love. Thank you that your love for us does not depend on what we do or how well we do it, but on what Jesus has done and how well he did it. Would your grace confront us anew today? Would it challenge us? Would it change us? Would it compel us? God, help us to see you more clearly now and to be moved more deeply by your gospel now as we lift our voices and celebrate you and your grace in Jesus' name.
Amen.